Welcome, friends, to The Flower of the Cedar, a novel in episodic podcast form. We are about to start the next chapter. Come, join us. Chapter 13 The Sadness and the Hope The waiting, the watching, the tense worry had stretched into three full days and nights. At times, Lara seemed moving into greater peace. Then she would again grow fretful and pained, and Danai's face firm and grave, watched her husband as his strength flagged. He did not once leave Lara's side, and he did not sleep. At times he would turn wordlessly toward his wife, and she would take him against her, and he lay quiet in her arms as they breathed in tandem. At her touch he settled, with her breath, he rose renewed. Dane and Jan together foraged, hunted, made meals, carried water, and did for Danai any small tasks to which she directed them. With time, the work required little thought, and Jan's mind loosed into anxieties that swelled greater with the passing days. Once, once only, at the peak of a wave, Dane beside her took her hand and grasped it, and looked into her face as though he knew the shape and tenor of her hearts in that moment. He spoke no word, but deep within her a furled, painful knot released. At last, on the morning of the fourth day, Toron broke into a sudden laugh of pleasure. He turned to them, his eyes catastrophically weary, yet ebbing into joy. She has returned, he said simply. She will be well. Then he collapsed. Danai rushed to him with a cry. Dane, who had been just outside, heard the uncharacteristic, sharp break in her usually even-tempered voice, and came swiftly in. He just... Jan stumbled, gesturing, her hand shaking, whether with relief or new worry, she did not know. Dane and Danai together lifted Toron's body and laid him to the back of the pallet, Jan shifting Lara to make room. What happened? Jan asked when Denai stood back. He is a healer, she said. It takes a great deal from him, even at his full strength. And he has not had that for some time now. 
she put a hand to her face and turned away from them. Living-hearted healers come only a few to a generation, and the world... She paused, closing her eyes on an old pain. The world is hard on them. Harder, perhaps, in some ways than it is on any other. For it is a place of great brokenness, and the wounded call from all sides, and it whelms the healers' hearts. We had not intended more on this journey. His hearts have, have broken of late, and we go into hermitage, where he may retreat from the world and its ceaseless wounds. She looked at Toron's prone form, covered now in a dark blanket, his face in shadow. It has taken too much from him. I do not know what else to do. His distress is my own, and I cannot. I cannot shield him from it, nor lift it. Dane watched her closely, compassion bright in his face. And yet you took us in, he said. She looked down. How could we do otherwise? Many would have passed us by, he said simply. She gave him a grim smile. Not Toron. Not me. Lara rose to wakefulness that day, while Toron sank deeper into the torpor that had first seized him. Danai could not rouse him to food or drink. Though Lara's fever had passed, her body was not yet strong enough to leave the pallet, and Jan and Dane met one another's gaze with a shared concern. They could not remain here, the winter approaching, food stores growing scant. Danai, too, carried the worry with her. She and Toron had been travelling south, swiftly, outpacing the winter, seeking a mountain seclusion they knew, fleeing some unnamed pain. But he could not travel now, and there was no telling when he would waken, nor what state he would be in when he did. As the days passed, Lara remained awake for longer and longer periods, learning of their rescuers, speaking with Jan and with Dane. Often she turned on her side to look on Toron in his motionless sleep, searching the sadness of his face for glimmers of hope that did not come. She remembered 
the voice that had spoken sister to her, and the arms that had held her, and she ached that he had gone so far beyond anyone's reach. Come the evening of the seventh day, their luck changed. Jan, who had gone further afield in her foraging that day, came into a swath of woodland she had not before explored. She searched fruitlessly for some hours before discovering a stubborn break of brush bearing a late nut, whose crabbed shell she thought they might manage to breach with pestle against rock, if they were fortunate. She had filled her satchel with this bounty when she caught a sudden flitting motion between the trees. Quickly she dropped to the earth, looking toward the movement, keeping her breath quiet and low. Had it been a wind? An animal? But no, soon, from amid the darkened trunks, she saw a figure emerge, man-height, alert and silent. And, for all her stillness, she realized, fear seizing her. He had seen her. He came closer, and she let out a breath with relief. One of the mahoganies, girt in a hunter's gear, leather hide cured for winter wear. They made rare hunting parties before the strength of winter had fully come, she knew. His white, solemn face regarded her calmly, probably a father in middle life. Jan rose, somewhat shaky still, then half-knelt in deference and gave her name. The Mahoganies, with their reserve, were known neither for much friendliness nor much crime. Many of the tales told about them said they had no passions at all, either for enjoyment or for suffering. Jan gave these little credence. Reserve controlled passion by pulling it deeper, not by eliminating it. After his grave, courteous greeting, she felt only a few, very few, misgivings in asking this stranger to their shelter. Toron still responded to no touch, and had taken no food nor water for far too long, and Lara yet could not walk. Their stores had dwindled frighteningly, and the deeps of winter had not yet come. Neither Lara nor Toron would be ready to travel in time to escape them. If they could be convinced, the Mahoganies could provide the warmth and provisions needed for their survival through the snows. And had Dane not said he was sent to a family of the Mahoganies before the spring? She ducked beneath an aged tree's trunk dropped heavy across the way, and motioned for the man to follow. He walked with a pride of place, upright, hands held ready at the sides, and she thought briefly of Dane's manner, also so ordered, so neat. But Dane showed his hearts in the flashes of glance, reflex, and occasional unpractised gesture. This man did not spare gestures, and revealed very little with expression. 
His folk learned young to make the face a still pool, echoing but not speaking. She thought, still pools are beautiful too, but I'd itch to jump in. Dane heard their approach and came to greet the man, his hands folding and opening in an intricate welcoming motion Jan supposed must be particular to the mahoganies. She had never seen it before. And the man returned it. Jan thought she caught a startled expression flit over Dane's features as the man introduced himself. Toman, father to three, a woodworker by trade, looking for a grove of saplings he had found the previous summer to harvest some of their wood for a task he had been set. He had travelled with a party of hunters. The camp was nearby. He asked if they had lost themselves. No, Dane said, but one of ours has sickened, and she will not stand through the winter, and another has fallen into a deep sleep, and we do not know when he will awaken. We cast ourselves before the mercies of your gun, if you would make a corner for us until the spring has come. The man nodded, acknowledging the propriety of the request. And my wife, a woman of kind heart, would find it her honour to welcome the poor among you. Yet the elders of the Garn must give their assent. And is your third able to walk to this place? Or is your third grasped in weakness and requiring the arms of the people to carry her? For the camp lies not a day's journey from this place. Our third would rejoice in the strength of the people, Dane said. And the sleeper, rejoined Toman, will he too rejoice when he meets with the mercy, said Dane. And will you wait upon the arrival of the people this night on my summoning? It is very good, Dane said. He grasped Toman's hand and touched the back of it to his own forehead. When he raised his eyes, he smiled, and Toman observed him with respect. And you have been among the people, young one, is it not so? he said. I am a runner, said Dane, and the gods sent me to the home of your family. In my hearts, I am glad it is you who should welcome me in simple kindness, before you had known. Jan started to hear Dane take up god-language in the midst of the cold. Then she remembered the Mahoganies had their own feast cycles, and they likely would not recognize those of the Marked Ones. He took on their divine language then, just as he did their gestures of greeting. Toman gazed at Dane for a while without speaking. Jan saw the feeling in his eyes, but did not comment. Private, she thought quietly. Finally he said, And you are welcome indeed, runner. This time, Dane inclined himself with fist to chest in his own characteristic gesture. Toman left to bring carriers, and Dane and Jan went to tell Danai of their good fortune. When she heard... Her face looked as though she would shortly burst into a passion of weeping. 
but she simply nodded, took both their hands for a moment and gripped them, and then began to pack their camp and ready Lara and Toron for the journey. They had swept over the ashes of their fire pit when Toman returned, and following him were four young women and four young men, clothed in similar fashion to Toman, though the leather of their outerwear had been colored different shades of brown, and two of the youths wore a kind of kerchief or sash at the right hip, one a purple nearly black, the other a deep, startling scarlet. They presented themselves singly, then turned as one and made obeisance before setting to silent work. In short shrift, the contents of their camp had been strapped to many shoulders, and Lara and Toron each gently settled into a swinging litter carried between pairs of the softest of foot. The light wooden structure to which the litter was affixed seemed of marvellous craftsmanship, Lara could not see any joints between its limbs that indicated it had been made from more than one piece of wood. It had four poles extending from front and back that fit to grooves in the leather and wooden shoulder straps worn by each of the young hunters, and four coming out from its sides. In this manner the litter could be carried by two in shifts or by four at once, always leaving the hands free. Jan pulled at her pack's straps, nodded to Dane, and the whole party left the lean-to at a quick, even pace. Danai kept beside her husband's litter, her shoulders erect, her stride long. <laughs> Dane had moved ahead to walk in step with Toman. For much of the journey they had their heads bent close together in conversation, their voices low, the syllables of their speech undifferentiated. Lara, from her swing, could hear a single rumbling stream of murmurings, but no actual language. Once the stream was broken by a short, deep laugh from Toman. It sounded bitter as dark ale. Dane reached a hand to him, and the rumbling resumed. They did not join the hunter's camp, but instead made directly for the mahogany city. They travelled mostly in silence for nearly two weeks, making and breaking camp with such graceful rapidity that Lara marvelled. For all their appearance of youth, these men and women must have been trained for winters upon winters, from near infancy, she supposed, to have reached such a pitch of skill in early life. One would run ahead and choose a camp while another left to bring down game for their meal, returning with precision and, invariably, success. Dane and Toman continued their speech together. The youths communed mostly in silence, with occasional lapses into conversation. Lara and Jan, apart from small interchanges concerning Lara's continued weakness and the daily changing of her poultices, 
lingered in their own private thoughts. They felt little inclination to converse as the days passed. Danai did not join them round the nightly fires, but remained keeping silent watch at Toron's side. Once Lara saw Jan go to stand beside her, speaking something to her that Lara could not hear. Jan set a hand on Danai's shoulder, and the woman covered it with her own, turning her face to look up into Jan's. Her eyes were afraid. One morning, the youths, walking foursquare with the litters between, began a slow rhythm with their footfalls and the palms of their hands on their thighs. Lara let her eyes flit from one countenance to another, but she could read nothing upon them. No sadness, no humour, no impatience. One lad, the one who wore the scarlet sash, at last lifted a hand and pointed ahead of them through the trees, the white fingers seeming to glimmer against the shadowy evergreens. A hill rose there, its dark bulk blocking the sun from them. Lara could just make out what she took to be a wall, perhaps a ruined one, as its outline appeared uneven against the light. It spiked up or tumbled down without apparent pattern or intent, the edge at times petering up as thin as feathers. Perhaps it was not a wall? She turned slightly in her litter to see better. The lad who had pointed, still beating his part of the rhythm, which had increased, suddenly sounded a low note. His companions sang their own thick, deep harmony as the leader wove a plain melody into the cooling air. Soon the bone shudder of their walking song came to Lara on all sides, the eight voices rising, falling, unselfconscious. They were looking at the wall. She could see now, as they came closer and emerged from the trees, that it was not a wall. The unevenness resolved in her vision to the shapes of leaves and branches. It was a tall, dense hedgerow, nearly opaque with the slick, dark green of its leaves. They stood out from their branches as though blown by a stiff wind, and hidden in the depths of the hedge, berries gleamed red. Toman ran up the hill and spoke to two figures standing on this side of the barrier. The young carriers let their song fall. They mounted the hill. Lara saw an arch of dark, grainy wood carved in simulation of the hedge's upright, waxy leaves and its secret fruit. Then, past the gaze of the two guards, through the archway and into the mahogany village beyond. The hedge broke the worst of the wind, but Lara shivered all the same, looking out on the high tor and its homes, streets, wind and snow. They had built with stone foundations and a thousand, thousand woods, making of the humblest joining a masterpiece of carven craft. 
The sandy, pale driftwood gleamed from the lower strands, showed mostly in the lintels of homes, window frames, delicate shutterwork. She saw also the burnished browns of maple, the rich cherry woods, the black of oak, the cream of rowan, birch, sycamore. And the people, in their dress and fittings, bore out such panoply of these shades that she wondered to think there could be so many imaginings of brown in the world. Once they had descended from the hedge into the streets of the village, she could feel the wind but scarcely, the hilltop on which the city was built was depressed in the one end, making a lip, as it were, upon which the hedge ran to circle the southwestern swath, and hiding the rooftops thereby from the gaze of any traveller at the hill's foot. But the ground rose on the northeastern end, seeming to lift the buildings there till their heads rose above the hedge, looking out northward to the plain below, for the land to the north of this mahogany village stretched flat for some miles of curving grassland, circled by hillocks and mountain skirts, and eastward seeming to melt into an outlying spur of the mountain range at its furthest flung arm. At the highest point of this hill upon a hill, a great oaken house stood, turreted like a castle but humbler in aspect. Here the gun resided, held assembly, mediated, and governed. The Mahoganies in their clans named no queen, no king. They ruled by ganim of thirty or forty, five women or men at least from each generation, for they were a long-lived people. Lara soon realized that what she had mistaken for youth in the hunters who had carried her was common to this people. From the first passage into adulthood at fifteen, a mahogany's appearance changed very little until she reached her hundred and fiftieth winter. Lara sat up in her litter the entire time they walked through the streets, amazed at how very young all the people looked whom they passed. Before long, she began to feel embarrassed for how openly she had been staring, and turned her attention instead to the architecture of the homes and great buildings along the streets. She could not make out a small house anywhere. Houses, instead, seemed to sprawl out with many linked wings and patios, archways revealing cold terraces and gardens within, as though each home were a small palace. Often adjacent homes shared springing walkways, rough stone from the base and interlocking wooden slats above. The homes did not rise above two stories, and wherever she looked, she could still see the slate winter sky through the sloping roofs. She thought it meant snow, and soon. The people about her in their neatly fitted leggings and thick boots seemed accustomed to snow. She was jarred from her reflections by a cry ahead of them. Dane and Toman at the front halted, and the carriers, too, stood still. 
Twisting to the side and leaning forward, she saw a streak of green and brown come hurtling towards Toman. Legs and flapping braids became apparent as the missile slowed. A small girl now clung to his torso, eventually falling back and hopping on one leg in front of him. Lara laughed aloud and fell back on her stretcher, feeling light-headed with sitting. Toman knelt with his usual deliberate grace, passing his hands over the small girl's fair hair and cupping her face. She could be heard chattering to him, though the words were indistinguishable, and he made some grave reply before lifting her and carrying her against him. The party walked forward again. After passing three more grand houses, they stopped at the front arch of a fourth. Rather than upright carven posts and lintels, this entrance had been created from a single whorl of wood, tall as a man and at least a man's length deep. Its grain was dark, nearly ebony, and had clearly seen many cycles of seasons. Originally circular, the outer circumference had been fitted neatly into the walls of the house, and its centre hollowed out to make room enough for one person to pass through. The remaining wood had been carved and sanded into fantastic shapes, curves and arabesques, patterns delicate as lace, likenesses of lilacs and lilies tumbling from inner crevices. An inlay at the apex, made from some paler wood, brought the arch to a point with the thin branches of a star piercing upward. Thoman held his fingers to his lips, and then touched a point down and to the right of the inlay. The wood there shone as though oiled. The carriers, without comment, lowered the litters at the threshold. Their width could not be admitted by this narrow entrance. The young man with the purple sash came and lifted Lara neatly to carry her inside. Dane and Danai, as though by unspoken agreement, lifted Toron between them, just as they had done when he first fell. Jan was the last to come in, lingering within the arch, craning her head back to peer at the carving that swept from floor to top without break. No threat of obscurity had withheld the artist's care when this was made. Even the hidden crevices showed painstaking detail. She put a hand to the back of her neck, like, she murmured, massaging gently, then dropping her gaze and stepping inside. The Flower of the Cedar is written, produced, and published by me, Kay Ben-Avraham. This content is made possible by the support of my patrons on Patreon, we make monthly pledges they can increase, decrease, or cancel at any time. If you are enjoying listening, please consider supporting my work on Patreon. Even a dollar a month makes a great difference to a struggling author. For those of you wishing to support this work in non-monetary fashion, you can tell a friend about the podcast or leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help ratings rise so that other people can find it. Thank you.
so much.